Today's scripture reading is found in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and chapter 7, verse 24. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The word of the Lord. Um, so we read from Romans this morning, and typically what we do um, here at, at the parks is to uh, preach through uh, a book of the Bible. Um, and if you've been with us uh, for a little while, you know we've been in First and Second Samuel for uh, a really long time. And uh, we actually are going to continue um, in, uh, in Second Samuel today. And you might be thinking, well, then why didn't we read Second uh, Samuel? Why do we read from, from Romans? And it's for a very simple reason. Uh, chapter 13, where we'll be most, uh, mostly in today, um, depicts some pretty uh, vile scenes. Um, and there are kids in the room, and I want to respect them and their parents. Uh, we, we typically say, hey, yeah, bring your kids into the service uh, if, if you want to. And so um, want to be considerate of that. Um, but... Uh, this this story it really is um, just it's the worst. If I if we weren't in this context and I was just telling you the story and I wasn't using uh, the names and places from the Bible and yeah just telling you the story you'd be like is uh, is this a Game of Thrones episode like what what is this and and I I mean that's like kind of a joke but actually not really. Um, I I should point out though that there's a big difference um, be- between the two. Uh, there's a difference between uh, vile and vulgar. Um, and the Bible describes some pretty horrendous events here, but it in no way sensationalizes them. Sensationalizes them. Uh, it in no way is you know, trying to get more ratings. Um, I doubt that anyone, after watching uh, an episode of Game of Thrones or a show kind of like that, uh, has, has just wept at the brokenness of the world after watching it. But uh, you sit in 2 Samuel 13 for a little bit, and that might happen. The difference, the key difference is this. The Holy Spirit, through the scriptures, is revealing the full depth and range of sin um, towards certain ends in, in, in this and similar passages. And those ends are that, one, we would truly hate sin. Uh, we so often become indifferent towards it and, and spectators of it, really. Two, besides just hating sin, the text like this teaches us to truly see sin. Um, we often are blind to it, and it's corrupting ways uh, against ourselves and, and everything around us, and so we're often taken in by sin, and we just need to have it exposed uh, for us. And then, uh, when seen in light of all of Scripture, a passage like this helps us to truly know uh, the riches of Christ's love. So that's kind of our goal this morning, is, is that we would uh, hate sin more deeply, that we would see it more clearly, and then know God's love more fully. That's kind of our, our goal this morning. 
So maybe um, our choice of text with uh, Romans 3 makes um, a little more sense. We're going to see uh, the depth and range of sin on display in 2 Samuel 13 um, and into 14 as well. And I hope that in doing so, we really would despise sin, not be naive about it, and then glory in Jesus. So I am going to um, go through the story, but I'll I'll purposefully leave out some details and use some uh, milder language a little bit. Um, First, though, we kind of need to remember where this story has has been, where we've been in in 2 Samuel. In chapter 11, um, that's where David committed uh, adultery with uh, Bathsheba. The text says he took her. Then he conspired to have her husband Uriah killed. And then last week, uh, Kyle unpacked chapter 12, where Nathan the prophet confronted uh, David about his sin, uh, relating a story about a rich man uh, stealing and slaughtering the beloved sheep of a poor man. When David hears this, um, he proclaims judgment against the rich man. He deserves to die. You are the man, Nathan proclaims. David is cut to the heart, and he confesses without excuse or rationalization, I have sinned. God does forgive him, but uh, sin still has, 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 has consequences. He sinned against others. And so uh, look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 with me in, in verses 10, and two, 10 to 12. Um, and you can see here um, God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David, and this is what he says. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Sin is uh, personal. It it is something that you uh, think and, and, and feel and do that does not align with God's character, but it's never just private. Uh, It is always seen, or at least in some way felt, by those you interact with. And so that's what we see uh, happening here in uh, 2 Samuel 13. David's family is the immediate context and recipient of his sinful actions. So let's look at the devastating consequences. The scene turns to Absalom. Absalom is David's third son, um, and from what we can gather, he's actually second in line um, to the throne. Um, David's secondborn is never mentioned after chapter 3, so um, based on the events that unfold, um, we assume that he must have died young. And this is going to be kind of an important point later um, about Absalom. Um, We are also introduced to his beautiful sister, Tamar. Um, And then they have a half-brother, Amnon, um, David's firstborn son and next in line to the throne. So Absalom and Tamar are siblings. Amnon is their, their half-brother. Uh, David is the father of, of, of all of them. Um, some of them have, have different mothers. And ironically, um, really kind of a, a sick irony here, uh, Amnon, actually his name means faithful or reliable. Just remember that. Um, Absalom means father of peace. Just remember that as well. Um, we'll see if, if uh, either lives up to their name. Um, immediately after this introduction, uh, the scene just becomes really sickening, um, I, I, literally and, and figuratively, actually. Uh, Amnon, we are told, is tormented by Tamar's beauty, 
and makes himself ill because he cannot do anything to her like he wants. Their cousin Jonadab, whom the text calls crafty or cunning, uh, concocts a prescription for this ailment. Jonadab suggests that Amnon pretend to be truly sick, and when David comes to visit him to check on him, uh, requests that David send Tamar uh, to to come and to bake him uh, some special bread. And Amnon follows the advice. David visits and then sends Tamar, and she innocently comes and, and humbly serves her brother. But Amnon is not content. He sends everyone away out of the house and demands his way with her. She appeals to her own dignity. Don't humiliate me or disgrace me. She appeals to cultural norms. This kind of thing is not done in Israel. She appeals to his own reputation. You will be considered a wicked fool. She appeals to David's soft spot towards his son. Let's go talk to the king. He will approve the union even if the law does not. But the text tells us that he didn't listen and that he was stronger. So, Then look at verses 15 to 17 with me. This is what happens next. <clears throat> then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. I didn't even unpack how bad it really gets. That's just on the surface how bad it is. Amnon is now disgusted by her, and in two harsh words uh, in the Hebrew, commands her to remove her filthy presence from his house. Get up, go. She is less than human to him. Not only will he not call her by her name, he actually didn't even say put this woman uh, out. Our translators give, give Tamar more dignity than Amnon does. The original Hebrew just says this, put this, this thing out. Maybe he acts this way because his actions have revealed his gross inadequacies. And, and seeing her regularly would be, as one commentator stated, a repeated, extremely shameful, unmasking, and intolerable confrontation with his own shortcomings as a person. And I think that's right. Covered in shame, Tamar runs out. She rips her royal robes. She puts ashes on her head, and she weeps. Rightly so. The whole thing is horrendous. Absalom, her brother, realizes what happens um, and tells her to actually keep silent and not take it to heart. Now, typically, that would be the last thing you would want to say to someone in, in Tamar's position. But given the cultural context and what we see of their relationship later, um, it actually might have been some comfort to her. He's, he's kind of saying, um, let's keep this a family matter. I'm in the family. I'll handle the matter. The person who we would expect to handle the matter would be David, the father, right? And the text does tell us he is angry when he finds out what happens. He doesn't do anything. Gosh. Doesn't do anything. 
because of what has happened recently in his own life? Does he think he's morally compromised, morally disqualified from enacting justice here? Absalom is, he's patient, but he's not inactive. Two years go by, and man, what those two years must have been for Tamar. Two years goes by, and Absalom uh, approaches David and asks David uh, that he and, and all of his, his sons, Absalom's brothers, uh, attend Absalom's uh, sheep shearing festival that he was going to have. But Absalom seems to know that David would decline, and when he does, he, he presses him that he at least allow Amnon and the others to come. David is a little curious at this request, as he should be, but ultimately blesses the endeavor and sends the sons to the party. Absalom has bided his time and now will enact vengeance. So verses 28 through 29, this is, this is what happens. <clears throat> then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. All the sons would eventually return home to David except Absalom who flees into exile because of what he's done and stays with his uh, maternal grandfather, the king of Geshur, leaving David mourning for his lost son. But which son is he mourning for? that he's lost. Is it Amnon? Is it Absalom? Is it both? We don't know. <sighs> All right, just break. Just breathe uh, for, for a second. Um, I think it's sad that an assassination is not actually even the worst thing that happens in this passage. Right? Um, the whole thing is just absolutely awful. Um... A brother wouldn't harm <clears throat> and humiliate his sister like that. A father would do nothing. A brother would kill another brother. And all, all relationships just all around are torn apart. Man. I hope at this stage that as we are sitting in this, we are disgusted by the sin that we have seen. That we feel the oppressiveness of sin. Now, what this does in us is start to prime us to be disgusted that, of, of the sin that we see in our world and even in our own lives. This story is, is really just like the effects of sin 101. It is just like, let's take sin and show, show it in all of its nastiness. So now, <clears throat> let's step back a second. And let's unpack some things about sin so that, as I said in the beginning, we wouldn't be naive about it or surprised by it or taken in by it. I want us to see sin clearly and then run the other way to Christ. The first thing we should note about sin in this passage is that sin reproduces. <clears throat> we exist in such uh, intricate, complex relationships um, within ourselves first, um, our, our will and heart and mind and body and spirit all, all constantly interacting. <clears throat> and we live in such complex relationships with, with others and with our whole world that even the slightest perversion or corruption of God's good world inevitably spreads to all it touches. Um, 
I think, I think it's interesting that in the uh, first century, um, the Jewish group uh, whose beliefs were most closely aligned with early Christians uh, was the Pharisees. You just objectively wrote down their statement of faith. Theirs is the most similar to Christians. But what does Jesus say about them? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Their teaching, even though it's, oh man, it's so close. It's just twisted enough that like leaven, it works it, its way out into the hole and corrupts the, the whole. It, it, it just reproduces. <clears throat> and, and that's, that's what we, we see here. Even just a little perversion from God's will, and it permeates the whole thing. And I think we see that in this passage um, in, in two specific ways. Um, the first is, is this. We see that sin breeds new sin. Sin breeds new sin. If you remember back in chapter 11, when David took Bathsheba, his falling away from the Lord didn't stop at adultery, right? He, he then uh, manipulated and he lied and ultimately killed Uriah. Sin bred sin. The same is true here. <clears throat> Amnon might have started with a twisted, uh, corrupt desire, but to achieve that desire, he lied to and manipulated David. He physically harmed Tamar. Uh, then he cr- cruelly disposed of her like trash. The same is true of, of Absalom. Though he desired justice, um, that justice became polluted with hatred, and it turned into vengeance. And for that vengeance to be satisfied, he also had to do some lying and some manipulating. Sin bred sin. I say this so that we would recognize that we cannot entertain sin even the slightest. Those, those twisted or off or, or bent feelings will affect your thoughts, will affect your view of others, will affect your choices, and so on and so on. Just pick your starting point, whether you're talking about um, perverted thoughts or some immoral actions or inappropriate relationships. It doesn't matter where that, that sin kind of creeps in. Sin will breed more sin in you. It will spread to the whole of you. So when you recognize the ways in which you are bent away from God, those have to be immediately confessed, uh, repented of. You have to turn away from that and then just hand it over to God, or you might find yourself in a position where you never thought you'd be doing and thinking, feeling things you never thought you'd do or think or feel. That's how sin operates. And some of you know this right hand or right right now by, by, by firsthand experience. You're like, how did I get here? How did I get to this point where this is what I'm doing? Because sin breeds sin. You didn't recognize that and, and, and stopped it. You, weren't, you didn't follow Jesus' advice like the, like, he, like the warning that he gives us for the Pharisees. Beware the leaven. So sin bred sin in your life. That, now that's where you are. But sin doesn't reproduce uh, simply within ourselves. There's another way that we see sin kind of reproducing uh, in, in this passage. Uh, we see that sin multiplies across generations and cultures even. So did you, did you notice how Amnon and Absalom's sins kind of mimicked their fathers? Taking a woman for pleasure, lying, murdering. David's sins didn't stay with David. How does sin spread through families like this? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, is it, is it genetic? Is it learned behavior? Is it a generational curse or judgment? Maybe it's some combination and, and more, but it does happen. And because we are so embedded in our families, sometimes 
we have a difficult time even seeing the ways in which our whole family is off. Blind to the fact that maybe some of our family's uh, values and practices are actually out of step with God. But, but, but we go to church every Sunday. Okay, yeah, but sin, this is still how, how, how sin works. Our, 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 our families often have patterns of sin that we just get kind of brought into and we can become blind to it. I mean, can, did, did Amnon and Absalom see it? No. Can you? If sin multiplies across families, give it enough time and it will pollute and has polluted entire nations and, and cultures in, in a similar way. I mean, you can even look at how God calls out all of Israel in a passage like Amos 5. And he does this all throughout the, the Old Testament where, where he's calling out a, a whole people for, for sin. We are almost certainly blind to ways in which Western American culture, even our uh, Southern supposedly Christian culture, has created institutions and rituals and ways of thinking that are contrary to God's character and commands. So what do we do about that? The problem of, of sin in, in, embedded in families and cultures that we just kind of grow into and, and maybe have a tough time identifying. Well, I'm not gonna answer that for you. Uh, you need to do the work on your own and with wise counsel and with God. And ask him to actually reveal those things to you. Let, uh, ask him to let the word of God really come over you and, have, and, and be the lens through which you see the world so that you actually see the ways that yeah, your, whole f- your whole family maybe even has operated in a way that is off from God's plan. So now, hopefully, <clears throat> at least you know to be on the lookout for that kind of sin. And that's really the crucial first step. Sin uh, reproduces, but we see uh, a second characteristic of sin in our story. Um, as we reproduce sin, our sin disintegrates everything. I like this word, um, disintegrate, uh, because I think it's especially beneficial in helping us identify what sin does. It, it breaks down, it tears apart, it decomposes, it destroys. It's all of that wrapped in one So if God is a God of life and order, sin is a kind of death and chaos. It does the opposite. Um, I I have a diagram here that I think kind of helps illustrate this, uh, how this point kind of works out. Um, I call this uh, a progression of sin, not the progression of sin, because sin and grace and God and ourselves and the world are are, are so complex that I don't know that it, it, it kind of looks like this every time. But I think this is pretty true of both Amnon and Absalom. I think they kind of follow this, tra- follow this trajectory um, up top here to um, the, um, the bottom here. Um, and uh, I think in looking at this, we'll see um, how sin often reproduces and how it kind of destroys everything um, that, that it, it, it touches. So we'll see that there's this destructive path that sin creates and that we often go down that same kind of path like Amnon and Absalom. Uh, so first, each of them start up here with, with a corrupt desire or passion. For Amnon, that's just a corrupted desire for pleasure. And for Absalom, that's a corrupted passion for justice. 
From that, they either objectify or dehumanize another. So let me explain what, what I mean here. Um, by objectify, I mean that Amnon treats Tamar like a means to his goal. She's just an object or a thing to get what he wants. And then on the other hand, um, Abs- Absalom dehumanizes Amnon. He sees him as, as an impediment to what he wants, something to be discarded and disposed disposed of, but in both cases, they fail to treat a human being with dignity as an image bearer of God, and it turns into violence or coercion with some deceit and manipulation on the way to get there. <clears throat> now, you might say, well, I, I don't think this diagram applies to me. I don't objectify or, 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 or de- dehumanize others, and I, I surely don't turn to violence. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's them. That's, that's, that's definitely not not me. I mean, I believe in equality and, and, and treating everyone fairly and loving your neighbor. Um, all right, <clears throat> let's unpack this a little bit then. Uh, well, first, every single one of us is an expert at step number one. We are an expert at making our own desires and passions ultimate. We could actually say this is one of the cultural sins we just kind of uh, grow into, right? Our culture says, hey, whatever you're feeling, that, you should just pursue that. You won't actually be satisfied until you take what you're feeling and, 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 and pursue that. And so that's just, we all have, have, a, have, have a habit of now making our desires ultimate. And when that happens, everything and everyone becomes either a means to fulfill our desires or an impediment to that desire. And in both cases, we have ceased to treat people as God's image bearers. I think actually uh, we commit many, many small acts of objectification and dehumanization daily. I think actually I could spend a lot of time unpacking that and giving some examples, but here is uh, just one. Have you ever said something like, ugh, I can't even deal with her right now? Uh, Or maybe he's not even worth my time. Those are pretty common things to, to say. And these and other kinds of sneering, dismissive, put-down comments, what do they do? They lift you up. They put others down. It satisfies, really, our desire to be uh, well thought of, to be in the in-crowd. It, 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 in it puts that desire up top, and everything else is either in the way or is going to help us get, get there. And this act has a name, contempt. When you hold someone in contempt, contempt in this uh, less than category, it becomes much easier to lie to them, to coerce them or, or do violence to them. Um, Jesus actually uh, draws this connection um, between uh, anger, contempt, and fury to murder in Matthew 5, 21 through 26 draws all of these, these out. We all are on that same uh, trajectory. All of those dehumanizing tendencies are destructive, and in some way or another, we're following sin's disintegrating um, trajectory here, um, particularly as it pertains to how we view and treat others. But that's not the end of it. We find, too, that, that, 
there's often dissatisfaction, right? In both cases, Amnon and Absalom, they, they don't really get what they want. Um, their distorted desires aren't, aren't fully satisfied, and, and, and really every relationship, again, is just torn apart by the end of it. Really, those last two things could kind of just be together and just a way of saying, yeah, everything leads to just disintegration. We can summarize uh, these by, by noting three points, I think. When you see, uh, it, uh, what, what you see in this progression of sin is number one, that sin disintegrates the self. It tears apart you. Sin destroys your integrity and puts you at odds with yourself. You actually become a master self-deceiver. Um, your thoughts and feelings and actions, they just... They aren't what you, what, they, what you think that they are oftentimes. I mean, look at Amnon. <clears throat> Amnon convinced himself that he loved Tamar until he hated her. His, his thoughts and his feelings were not together. And Absalom, <clears throat> is he killing uh, Amnon to do justice for Tamar or to become one step closer to the throne? His kingly aspirations, which we'll see in the following passage, reveal that the issue isn't so clear-cut. In the same ways, our feelings and thoughts and actions are broken and at and odds. We have lost our integrity. Second thing, sin, sin disintegrates the self, but sin also disintegrates other selves. I don't think I have to belabor this point. Look at Tamar. Look what happens to her. Look at Amnon. What happens to him? And then thirdly, sin disintegrates relationships. Tamar is desolate, mostly alone. The brothers are at a silent standoff for, for a good while, and, and trust in David is, is broken. The family's in disarray. I, I could actually add a, a third thing here, <clears throat> and it's actually what, what Kyle spent some time talking about uh, last week, which is that uh, the primary relationship that gets broken apart by sin is our relationship with God. That's actually what leads to all the rest of this. But sin breaks our, that relationship with God, ourselves, others. It's just a mess. But it was just a little lie. What I do on my own time doesn't affect anybody else. Everyone was talking about, about, about her, so what's the big deal? What I did wasn't as bad as what he did. No, the excuses need to stop. Sin is always destructive, and we should never minimize it or rationalize it. Really, we could summarize the previous two points with this third one. Uh, sin is essentially an infectious disease. Right? That's kind of how it, it operates. It, it just spreads itself wherever it can go. It breaks down everything. It infects that's what a disease does, except this one targets your soul. Do we see our failure to be in tune with the character of God as a disease to be cured? I don't know. Um, maybe for others. I don't know about me, though. Right? Let's kill sin for them, but I'll, I'll make an excuse or I'll justify it for me. Um, almost... 30 years ago at this point, um, in 95, Cornelius Plantinga Jr. noted in his book on sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a really helpful book, and it's really insightful and just 
kind of like what we're doing, unpacking how sin operates. Um, he notes that pride and boasting uh, used to be considered one of the seven deadly sins. But now, or then when he was writing, pride and bravado, <clears throat> they're all regularly celebrated in our context. Another cultural sin. Um, that's not how you treat a disease. You don't celebrate it. How do you treat it? What's, what's the remedy? Uh, planting it in that book also um, <clears throat> describes the, the, the problem here. He says, evil contaminates every scalpel designed to remove it. This is the problem. You even try to, to fix sin, take the scalpel, and even when that happens, it becomes infected by sin. Actually, in, in his book, he does a really good job of showing some examples of this. Um, one is, um, even in the uh, civil rights movements of the, the, the 50s, um, which was a, a good and noble thing to do, some correcting some, some very serious wrongs, uh, there were even still some groups that didn't really go about it the right way and used, some groups used violence and manipulation and the scalpel was contaminated. Chapter 14, um, which I'm going to overview just very broadly, I would encourage you to, to read it, is basically an illustration of this fact. <clears throat> in, that, in, in that passage, um, essentially Joab, who is kind of David's right-hand man, um, he wants David and Absalom to reconcile. He wants uh, to make things right, and that's good. That's a good thing. So <clears throat> he finds a wise woman to approach David, kind of like Nathan did in chapter uh, 12. She tells a story about her two sons, probably, probably a fictitious story, uh, and how one accidentally killed the other, and now everyone is wanting uh, to, uh, in return, kill the other son. Uh, long story short, David makes a judgment about saving the one son who accidentally did the murdering. Um, and then she tries to flip the script on him and ask why David doesn't pronounce the same judgment for Absalom and restore him to Jerusalem. While not, it's not wrong to try to do this, um, this is a purely human attempt at treating the disease. Right? In chapter 12, we're told God sent Nathan. Here, we don't get that. We just get Joab trying to do this. Um, so rather than be cut to the heart, David responds to the woman with Joab, as was behind this, isn't he? David does then go to, to Joab, and he allows Absalom to return, but uh, says Absalom can't enter his presence. Finally, after three years and a lot of other events, they do meet, but it's no return of the prodigal son. Um, Absalom bows in homage, David kisses him, but they never even speak a word to each other. And, uh, spoiler alert, in the next chapter, Absalom tries to depose his father. He tries to take the throne himself. So not a real reconciliation. So if, basically, we catch the disease, sin, that we need to cure, if it infects our scalpel, what do we do? What's to be done? Before we answer this, I want us to jump back into our story for a little bit. Um, we kind of have, have, have stepped back here. We've talked about the ways sin overtakes us in more sin, how we 
uh, essentially become enslaved in cycles of sin and embedded in families and cultures of sin and broken down by sin's destructive force. Um, all this has to do with sin that comes from you and that surrounds you. But what about the sin done to you? The sin of others that has hurt you in, in ways too deep to describe. What do we do about that? If we pick up the scalpel to do surgery, to make things right, that scalpel will inevitably transform into a sword used to attack and abuse in turn. We'll still be broken, and we will only have furthered sins, devastating course. So think about Tamar. And I've spent a lot of time talking about Amnon and Absalom and their sin. I, I do think it's so important to, to see the way sin has worked its way out um, and, and to be on guard against it. But Tamar is probably the one who's captivated me the most in this story. What about her? What about when, like her, you experience the devastating effects of sin? What about when you are utterly humiliated and just forgotten because, well, you're not even a person. You're just a thing to be used and discarded. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you know exactly what that's like. Um, for the last two weeks or so, as I've been looking at this text, um, I just have been kind of depressed by it, honestly, and not really looking forward to preaching it. Um, besides just being very aware of my own sin and the sin and brokenness of the world, I've been reminded each day, I've picked up the text, that there are, alongside the Amnons and Absaloms of the world, very many Tamars. And I knew that I'd have to walk up here and tell this story while many of you reflected on the ways uh, in which you've been severely sinned against, used, manipulated, harmed, humiliated, neglected. And what could I possibly say to you? Even in Second Samuel, Tamar's never mentioned again. She's just forgotten. And that's how many of you probably feel. Um, just sitting in this, um, this text. Then on, on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, uh, I went to the commons for our, our Wednesday morning prayer. You're all invited um, to come, seven to eight. Um, and then I, I enter into that space with, with just the oppressiveness of sin, just all on me here, just thinking about this and, and not knowing really uh, what uh, to do. I pulled out my Bible and opened it up um, to the next psalm in our daily reading plan, uh, which was Psalm 103. Um, maybe some of you read it this week as well and recognized it uh, in our opening prayer at the beginning of worship. And man, it was so sweet in that moment how the Holy Spirit just took those words and just put them in my heart. Um, 
And I just felt his love just wash over me. Sin filled with his love. And I want to read the psalm again now in light of what we have read, um, in light of um, maybe what you've experienced. And I want to, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would do the same thing for you. Because my words are inadequate, but his are pretty good. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. For all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That's the gospel right there. That's the good news in all of this, that he does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. That's the good news. That's the good news in all of this. That even though sin is bad, it is devastating. The love of God is more. There's no sin so vile that you have committed. And there's no sin that is so vile that's been committed against you. The love of God is not more. The destructive power of sin is nothing compared to the creative healing power of God's love. Sin never has the last word. The, the, the first and last word is always, is always God. He's, he's the word at the beginning that made this whole thing. He's the word that said it is finished. He's the word at the end that says you can enter my rest. That's the word that matters, not sin's word. How do I know this? Because of Jesus. This is not just, I, 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 I'm, I'm coming up with these abstract thoughts about God. No, no, 
I've seen it in God, in Jesus Christ, who is the great physician, who can, who can cure us of our disease of sin. Jesus heals our humiliation and our shame. He is the one who takes uh, the ashes uh, of mourning, who takes the shame and, and somehow transforms them into wholeness and flourishing and gladness. He would actually be humiliated for our sake. He would take your shame on himself. He would be, as the prophet Isaiah says, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God humbled himself, humiliated himself, made himself scorned and shameful and rejected so that he could absorb your shame into himself and you instead would have life and love. The writer of Hebrews um, puts it this way in, in, in Hebrews 2. This is what he uh, shares with us about Jesus. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the, de that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. That is the good news. That even in your humiliation and shame, Jesus says, no, 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 I will come down. I will be the humiliated one and you can have my life instead. But Jesus does even more. He is the great physician, not just to Tamar, but also to Amnon and Absalom. Jesus also excavates our sin and guilt because he is the perfect surgeon. Sin cannot contaminate his scalpel. On the cross, he not only takes our shame, he removes our guilt. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might have the righteousness of God. Though he was without sin, he absorbed sin into himself so that he would be condemned, not us. Also on Wednesday, uh, reading uh, Romans 3, which we started with, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Man, this is why in Romans 7, after Paul has contemplated the nature of sin, much like we have this morning, and he, and he found it to be a web of, of destruction and guilt and shame and chaos, at the end of all of that, he can proclaim, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And how does he answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. I want to just highlight again that I know there's some of you and you're walking in here and you're like, but you don't understand the ways I've been sinned against, how I've been humiliated. I'm unlovable. 
And God says, no, no. That's exactly who his heart goes out to. That's exactly who he goes out to and says, no, 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 come, come with me. You're my child. I delight in you. You are not that unlovable. God's love is more. And again, there are some of you who are walking in here and saying, Michael, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I think, what I do, what, I, what I've said. I don't. God does, and he still loves you anyways. He knows it, and he still died for you anyways. He still said, no, no, I'll take this sin. I'll take that guilt. He left it at the cross, overcoming it in his resurrection. So Jesus' love outlasts and outpowers sin. He won the victory over sin that will be fully affected at the end of time, but which already now comes into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So lay your shame and your guilt at the cross. Jesus will take it. Trust in the riches of his mercy and grace, for he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. And we are so not good. Our sin is so destructive. It tears away at our own hearts. It tears at our relationships with others. It breaks it down. It, 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 it's chaos. It's decay. It's death. And sometimes we even celebrate it. Help us to hate sin. Hate its destructive, disease-like ways. Help us to see it. To not be taken in by it like we so often are. And most importantly, help us to know your love, which washes our sin and makes us clean and makes us sons and daughters of the high king. Help us to know that your love really is from everlasting to everlasting. It really is as high as the heavens. It really is as far as the east is from the west because so often we don't believe it. So often the way we act towards you and, and, and towards our sin is that, well, maybe you'll kind of love us. Maybe you'll kind of forgive some things. But no, it's all of it. You take all of it. Thank you. Because that's all we can say, is thank you for taking our shame and our guilt.